As you drive along Route 25 through the Negev Desert, near the city of Dimona, but still pretty much in the middle of nowhere, you can see in the far distance a distinctive domed building set amidst what looks like a large industrial complex. If you ask what that building is way out in the desert, your tour guide will probably tell you that it's Israel's largest textile factory, and then quickly change the subject. Or maybe it's the Middle East's largest concrete making factory. Or I once heard that John F. Kennedy was told that it was a dairy operation producing ice cream. But what it really is, is one of the worst kept military secrets in the world. It's the Negev Nuclear Research Center, usually just known as the Dimona Reactor. Like many countries, Israel pursues research into atomic science and energy, and that, officially, is what the Dimona facility is used for. But we all know the real purpose, or at least we think we do. Dimona is where Israel makes its nuclear weapons. But should a Jewish state have nukes? And does Israel? Would it ever use them? Even before Israel was established, David Ben-Gurion was hot on the trail of the ultimate weapon. By the 1950s, Israel's potential nuclear capabilities was on everyone's mind, and Israel was determined to keep it all a secret. If I suddenly get kidnapped after airing this episode, you'll know who and why. Because I'm your host, and this is... I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. The book of Judges in the Hebrew Bible describes the Israelite warrior named Samson, who was so utterly physically strong that he's able to defeat Israel's Philistine enemies with ease, as well as killing a lion with his bare hands. Always useful. He owes his strength to his long hair, which he doesn't cut, but he is seduced by Delilah, whom the Philistines pay to discover the secret to Samson's strength. When he admits to her that it's his long hair, she lures him to sleep, chops it off, and turns him over to the Philistines as a captive. He's then too weak to resist their torture. But when the Philistines gather all their people and all their leaders into a temple in order to pay homage to their god for having defeated Samson, he asks to lean up against a pillar for support. His hair had grown out during his time in the Philistine prison, and he prays to God to grant him back his old strength. Clenching his mighty muscles, he pulls the pillar apart, crashes the temple down, and kills everyone inside. The Philistine people, their rulers, and himself. It's a strange story, to be sure, and a superficial reading leaves an unmistakable lesson. Sometimes, to inflict the maximum damage on your enemies, even when it's in the name of a higher purpose, you have to be willing to sacrifice yourself. From the beginning of Israel, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion was definitely interested in the maximum damage part of the equation. He wanted to pursue nuclear science both as a matter of defense and also as a matter of Israel's technical superiority. Since they didn't have much in the way of natural resources, Ben-Gurion reasoned, they ought to grow Jewish scientists instead. He is said to have instructed an agent to recruit Jewish scientists in Europe who could develop Israel's ability to either kill masses or cure masses. Both things are important. Nuclear research and its cutting-edge technological skills and knowledge would, would help the struggling country create energy, desalinate water, populate its universities with the brightest Jewish minds from around the world, Ben-Gurion didn't know much about atomic science, but he knew that the countries that did it were world leaders. 
and the Jews were only a few years out from the Holocaust, with the Arabs threatening to rain a second genocide down on them. Israel needed nuclear energy, it needed a nuclear reactor, and it needed the capability to build the bomb. Ben-Gurion had someone who he thought could get the job done, somebody already well-versed in the art of defense procurement, who spoke multiple languages, had a flair for diplomacy, and had excellent relations with the very people Israel would need to get help from. That person was his young protege, one of his favorite aides, the 29-year-old Director General of the Ministry of Defense, whose name was Shimon Peres. From the 1950s until his death in 2016, Shimon Peres will be involved in every aspect of Israeli life, politics, war, and technological development. He was famous for his bitter political rivalries and his hapless attempts to gain high office. He will twice serve as prime minister, neither time elected. He closed out his career and life as the much-loved, deeply respected president of Israel and enjoyed his final years as the Jewish state's elder statesman, the last living leader of the founding generation. He was also, apparently, first cousins with the actress Lauren Bacall. Perez was born in 1923 in what was then Poland, today Belarus, and immigrated to Israel as a boy in the 1930s. He joined the Haganah, Israel's pre-state army, not as a fighter, but as the guy in charge of buying guns. Hint, hint. He is one of the few Israeli leaders to have never served in the army, but nevertheless was put in senior positions within the military bureaucracy in the early years of the state. Perez was an organizational mastermind, brilliant at bureaucracy, forward-thinking, he became the Director General of the Defense Ministry in 1953, the youngest person ever, and was in charge of building strategic alliances to procure weapons and technologies from friendly states. He was very good at it. He was particularly good at getting weapons and support from France. Throughout the 1950s, the two countries enjoyed the closest of relations, far closer than Israel with the United States, which preferred to keep the Jewish state at an arm's length so as not to upset the Arabs. But France went all in with Israel from the beginning. In part, this was due to a sincere atonement for France's role in the Holocaust and genuine sympathy for the plight of Jewish refugees who were stuck in Europe after the war. The other reason was much more practical. France had a lot of interest in the Middle East and North Africa, especially amongst their current and former colonies in places like Algeria, Lebanon, and Syria. And they didn't particularly like the Arabs. And Israel had spies in those countries, usually in the form of native Mizrahi Jews, and Israel was happy to share intelligence with France in exchange for the latest fighter jets. So here's the point. Israel was setting out a military doctrine that would stay with it through today. Israel could never hope to have as much quantity as the Arab states. The Arabs collectively would always have more planes and tanks and guns. So where Israel had to gain its edge was in quality. So instead of trying to constantly acquire more gear, Israel wanted to have better weapons than what the Arabs could get. And France had some of the best stuff around. As I talked about last episode, that's why Israel was so alarmed when Egypt began taking deliveries of the latest Soviet weapons in the mid-1950s. That was one of the main reasons for the Sinai campaign of 1956. Remember, Israel, France, and Britain secretly joined together to attack Egypt. Well, Shimon Peres was one of the point men in fashioning that deal, and as part of it, Peres got France to agree to help Israel create a nuclear program. 
The Israeli writer Ari Shavitz notes that Perez pulled off one of the great strategic feats of the post-war world, persuading a major European power to give a minor Middle Eastern nation its own nuclear option. Israel was a tiny, struggling, and relatively poor country with less than two million citizens. It was the junior varsity kid attempting a crash course to join the NBA by the next season. Even France didn't have a nuke yet. Only Britain, the Soviets, and the Americans had them. But France was promising to bring Israel right along the road to nuclear stardom, and they supplied the Israelis with the engineering people, the raw materials, the missile technology, and the nuclear facilities to make it all happen. Facilities, that is, at the secret plant out in the desert near the city of Dimona. The problem with building a top-secret nuclear plant out in the middle of the desert is that no one would want to work there. It's crazy hot. I can attest to this personally. And as Perez later said, Israelis thought the Negev was basically the end of the world. So we added to his to-do list building an entire suburb next to Beersheba, Israel's biggest city in the desert. It had everything a community would need, wrote Perez, even a hair salon. Of course, it all had to be secret. Israel also needed money. A nuclear program is crazy expensive, and Israel in the mid-1950s was still struggling to put food on the table. Plus, they needed to find Israeli physicists and engineers and people who knew how to build huge projects with highly dangerous, politically explosive, exceptionally deadly materials. In other words, Perez had to create nuclear experts out of nothing, and to help build nuclear reactors when they didn't even have a clue how to do it. So Perez secretly raised money from deep-pocketed Jewish donors all over the world, he sent teams of Israelis to go study nuclear physics in France, where the French gave them open access to all their facilities and know-how. By the late 1950s, work began on a nuclear reactor at Dimona. Norway sold Israel the heavy water necessary for nuclear fuel, Israel obtained uranium and other raw materials, and Israeli and French scientists and engineers worked feverishly to get Israel the weapon it needed to hopefully guarantee its survival. Things were going well. But then... The Americans figured out what was going on. The United States would be more than willing. It would be proud to take up with others principally involved the development of plans whereby such peaceful use of atomic energy would be expedited. I would be prepared to submit to the Congress of the United States and with every expectation of approval any such plan that would first encourage worldwide investigation into the most effective peacetime uses of fissionable material. Now, the United States wasn't surprised that Israel was conducting nuclear research. After all, it was America that gave Israel the capability in the first place. In 1953, President Dwight Eisenhower launched the Atoms for Peace initiative, which you just heard. This was a Cold War effort to prevent the development of nuclear weapons. America promised to give its allies nuclear technology to be used for civilian research and industry. In exchange, those countries promised not to develop nukes. Turkey was the first country to sign up, and Israel the second. In the 1950s, America hooked Israel up with a nuclear reactor at Nahal Sorek on the coast south of Tel Aviv. Meanwhile, though, Israel was digging a gigantic hole in the Negev Desert near Demona, which did not go unnoticed by America's spy planes and satellites. Eisenhower asked Ben-Gurion what was going on. 
A textile factory, said the Prime Minister. So Israel had two nuclear development programs going on simultaneously. Over at Nahal Sorek was the small public nuclear research program for things like energy, water desalinization, medical uses, that sort of stuff. And out in the Negev was the top secret plant for developing the necessary technology to make nukes. The Americans were not excited about this development. The last thing anyone wanted was a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. In December of 1960, word leaked out in the international press that Israel was developing a nuclear reactor out in the desert, and probably not for civilian purposes. Ben-Gurion went before the Knesset and made the only public statement any Israeli prime minister has ever made about the Dimona facility. Yes, he said, we're building it. But it's for the purposes of conducting scientific research to develop the Negev Desert, to serve the needs of industry, agriculture, health, and science, with the goal of building a nuclear power plant in a decade. The reactor, he said, is designed exclusively for peaceful purposes. Now, he wasn't lying about the whole thing. Indeed, Israel was trying to develop the Negev and researching nuclear technology to help achieve that. And while it helped calm the Americans down a little bit, it didn't fully satisfy them. When John F. Kennedy came to the White House, he was hot for global nuclear non-proliferation. He kept asking Ben-Gurion for more details about Demona and wanted Israel to allow the United States to inspect the facility. He didn't appreciate how Ben-Gurion kept stalling him and Kennedy kept pestering the Prime Minister for answers. It led to a crisis of distrust in American-Israeli relations, not for the last time, but serious to the point of threats. If Israel wasn't forthcoming about its nuclear ambitions, said Kennedy, he would cut off all American support and ensure Israel's diplomatic isolation on the world stage. Kennedy asked to see Israel's foreign minister, Golda Meir, while on holiday in Florida. She explained to him that Israel was a normal country like any other, but with a big difference. And that was a responsibility to always be looking out for its future. If the Jews ever lost sovereignty in their home again, she said, they would likely lose it, and their lives, forever. She didn't want to be the generation that achieved independence after 2,000 years and then lost it again so quickly. Kennedy, Golda remembered, looked her dead in the eye and assured her that nothing bad would happen to Israel on his watch. He was assassinated a few months later. In any event, Kennedy and Israel had come to an agreement. The U.S. would get to inspect Dimona. In exchange, America would sell Israel sophisticated anti-aircraft missiles and would agree to give Israel several weeks' notice of any inspections. It was the beginning of a relationship that defined the next several decades of Israeli foreign policy, which is to look to the United States as its major military ally. With the American inspections set to go forward, so began, supposedly, a deception fit for a sitcom. Throughout the 1960s, the United States would send its team of inspectors over to Demona to check the place out. Ahead of time, Israel would rejigger the entire facility to look like a peaceful nuclear reactor. False walls, fake control rooms, mocked up gauges to make it look like the reactor was chugging away at some energy project. Everything down to putting those cautionary wet floor cones in a hallway to prevent the inspectors from checking it out. And it worked, to a certain point. By the late 1960s, the United States, and most of the rest of the world, were pretty sure that Israel had acquired a few nuclear bombs at that point. The question was, would the Jews, perennially threatened with annihilation by their enemies, ever actually use a nuclear weapon?
The reasons why Israel would want a nuclear weapon aren't hard to fathom, so soon after the Holocaust and surrounded by implacable enemies. There was a great benefit in having the ultimate security card to play, and to give the Arabs as much pause as possible when thinking about waging war. But except for Ben-Gurion and Shimon Peres, most of Israel's highest ranking officials, at least the ones in the know, they were opposed to acquiring a nuclear capability. It was too expensive for the poor country to take on, it was too technologically difficult and not worth the effort, it would lead to diplomatic isolation, it would be a burden on the military. Golda Meir was against it, so was Yitzhak Rabin. But Ben-Gurion won out, as he always does, and it seems that by the second half of the 1960s, Israel had the bomb. Jewish thought has nothing to say specifically about nuclear weapons, of course, way too far in the past, but plenty to say about the nature, morality, and rules of war. Seek peace and pursue it, says the Book of Psalms. Peace must be offered first. Once a siege has been put around a city, you must allow its residents to flee, and during the battle and afterwards you are prohibited from unnecessary destruction. In a somewhat strange and obscure passage in the Talmud, the sages seem to prohibit killing more than one-sixth of the population, which seems exceptionally high for a conventional army, but certainly possible with the use of nuclear weapons. On the other hand, one could argue that there doesn't seem to be anything expressly prohibiting acquiring certain kinds of weapons, just using them. You can let the other guy think you'll use them, even if you never will. We can't know how much the moral argument played into the debate. Israel's security establishment was a pretty hard-headed bunch, but they were also deeply concerned about the Jewish state's place in the moral universe and the court of public opinion. If Israel did in fact possess nuclear bombs, it decided to do something very, very strange with them. Pretend they don't exist. Most countries with nukes make them a key part of their military strategy. The United States has a number of scenarios which could call for the use of nuclear weapons of various sizes. But Israel seems to have separated its nuclear weapons from the rest of its military, saving their use for one and only one situation an absolute last-ditch effort when nearly all has been lost. It is this scenario, to bring us round to the beginning, it is this scenario that seems to have acquired its identification with Samson, the biblical judge. Unlike the legendary story of Masada, in which the Jews committed suicide rather than surrender to the Romans, this time Israel would become Samson, destroying itself and its Philistine enemies in one fell swoop. Should the Israeli army be defeated, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv destroyed, or Israel itself attacked with overwhelming weapons of mass destruction, then its remaining leadership would have one final option. The Samson option. Nuclear war. In reserving the use of nuclear force unless annihilation was at hand, Israel wouldn't rely on its nuclear bomb to allow it to behave recklessly. It wouldn't use its nuclear capability to launch wars of aggression, for instance, knowing that the other guy would be too scared to strike back. As Ari Shavit writes, Israel would be res the responsible adult of the international community. It would get to have its security guarantee while also acting like it didn't have it. At the same time, it allowed them to breathe a little easier, knowing that they had this safety umbrella hanging over them. This policy of nuclear ambiguity has been Israel's bedrock principle since then. In public, Israel sums up the question of its nuclear capability in two and only two sentences. We do not admit that we have the bomb, and we do not deny it. We only say that Israel will not be the first to introduce them into our region. 
This is what Shimon Peres told John F. Kennedy, and it has remained the same two sentences ever since. We do not admit that we have the bomb, and we do not deny it. We only say that Israel will not be the first to introduce them into our region. Yitzhak Rabin, who was Israel's ambassador to the United States in 1968, briefly elaborated on the word introduce. It means, he said, testing, deploying, or making the weapons public. And what about just having them in the first place? That, he said, wouldn't count as an introduction. The point of nuclear ambiguity, this acting as if they don't have nuclear weapons while possibly possessing them nonetheless, it was intended to both keep its Arab enemies uncertain of Israel's capabilities, while also not encouraging them to develop their own nukes. If the Arabs knew for sure that Israel had the weapons, then they would want them too, and Israel would never allow that to happen. It would go to war to prevent it. It would be too big of a risk for Israel to take. But as long as the whole thing was ambiguous, hopefully the Arabs wouldn't jump into an arms race. And it worked for the most part, with the exception of Iraq in the 1980s, Syria in 2007, and these days, Iran. But we'll get to that another time. Despite the ambiguity, Israel's supposed nuclear weapons would play a significant role at least once a decade. And so we return to our original question. Does Israel have nuclear weapons? The answer, my friends, is... As the Israeli writer Ari Shavit notes, an Israeli nuclear weapon marked the first time in history that the Jewish people had the ability to annihilate others. And it was being developed at a time when the country was revisiting the attempted destruction of the Jewish people a mere 15 years earlier. For in 1960, an Israeli spy snapped a photograph of an ordinary looking man, and what happened next resounded throughout the Jewish people louder than the pounding of thunder. The music today is Moshe Havusha, Yair Dalal, and Lenka Lichtenberg, and the incredibly talented women of Ewa. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahit Raot. See you later. Happy <laughs>